And you'll notice if you turn your Bibles, there's sort of the tagline of rebuilding the temple. And as we look, we say, well, rebuilding the temple, what does that mean? Obviously, there must have been something that was there that needed to be rebuilt. And in order to do that, we need to lay some context as to why we're reading what we're reading in Ezra. And with that, one of the things that I think is so important is to see how God desires to be among his people and be part of their lives and be active in their daily living. And so as we look back to the Old Testament, what we discover through the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, is that it's a historical narrative of essentially how God dwells among his people, establishes a king, an earthly king, for the nation of Israel to lead, guide, and rule, but then also sets a spot where he dwells in a temple built in glory in an area where people will come and worship. And so through those books, what we discover is a first temple is built through King Solomon, and it's grand, and it's wonderful, and God dwells in the Ark of the Covenant, obviously in the Holy of Holies, and for an extended period of time, the people of God are worshiping God at this temple, and life is good for a little while. And then as people continue to worship God, they continue to look in other directions. God is present among his people. God desires to be with his people. God wants to be with his people to the point that he is dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. And yet over time, the people of God begin to say there are other things that are more important other things that are drawing our hearts away from him and toward the world. Now, interestingly enough, God doesn't remain silent during this time. God doesn't just sit there and say, well, I guess this is what it's going to be. My people are leaving me, and ho-hum, might as well just do what I've got to do. But what God does through this historical narrative that we see in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, is he begins to send prophets to speak about what God is going to do due to the fact that people of God are beginning to wander away from him. Before we begin, I just want to ask a question. Have we wandered away from God? Have we allowed the world to permeate our thought? Friends, one of the things that I talked about last week and one of the things that I lovingly want to encourage is to truly examine our hearts and our lives and say, how much of the world permeates what we believe about God versus how much about what God tells us changes how we view the world? And there is a great big difference. And so little by little, what happens is the people of God begin to have the world permeate their hearts and draw away from God and worship of him. God sends a prophet by the name of Isaiah, and Isaiah says, here's what I'm going to do. People of God, I'm going to tell you that in a while, things aren't going to be so great. There is going to be a nation that's going to come forward, and it's going to conquer you. You are going to be sent into exile. You're going to be removed from your homes. You're going to be sent to a foreign land. And I'm also going to let you know that where I dwell is going to be destroyed. And Isaiah says this and continues to say this. And the people of God look at Isaiah and they say, that guy's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no idea what's going on. We're fine. All is well. The temple's right there. What do you mean? We have all that we need. And Isaiah continues to say that this is going to occur, but not only is this going to occur after a period of time of 70 years, I'm going to send another king who's going to take over the first king, and he's going to restore you back to me. And friends, one of the things that I think is so important as we lay in the context of Ezra and why I love this book so much is that it is proof positive about the reality of life and our tendency to draw away from God because that's just where our heart can go when we're not chasing hard after God. 
And lovingly, friends, what I will tell you is that there are consequences for our decisions when we choose to run away from God or when we choose to become lackadaisical about our faith. Now, God is not going to throw a lightning bolt down on you, but what I will tell you is it's like a parental relationship. Friends, when you choose to pull away from a deep relationship with your father or your mother, or when you choose to wander and do things on your own, that relationship is going to get strained. Any parent who has a child that chooses to misbehave isn't going to sit there and say, continue misbehaving. What are they going to do? They're going to discipline, and there are going to be consequences for those actions. And so as a loving Heavenly Father, what God does through the prophet Isaiah is say, hey, people, if you continue in this way, things are going to get bad. But I'm also going to tell you that even though things get bad, I love you and I will always love you. And I will bring about an opportunity of restoration. And so this is said, and to lay some context... What is said about the person who will restore, which is a gentleman by the name of King Cyrus, is stated by Isaiah 150 years approximately before Cyrus is even born. Now, I know I've said that multiple times in these messages, but the reason that I do is it's so important to see how the people of God, the Word of God, and the prophets of God ring true because what happens during this time is utter chaos and what I want to tell you is this the reason that's so important here is when we look to today we might think that the world is in chaos and even though there are unknowns even though there are twists and turns even though there are ebbs and flows even though there are changes of government even though there are wars even though there are rumors of wars what i can tell you is just as during this time the world was very tumultuous and today the world is tumultuous god's sovereign hand is leading, guiding, and directing the restoration of God's people to his church to bring glory and honor to his name. And he will continue to do so until he tells Jesus to come and collect his bride, the church. And so friends, as we look back and we see what God does, we can look forward with faith and joy and know that God will do because what God says God will do has done and is doing because he is God and so we come to this point in Ezra and what has occurred is the people of God have essentially blown God off they've laughed at the prophet Isaiah and sure enough over a period of time Nebuchadnezzar the leader of the Babylonians comes and essentially takes over or captures the people of God in Israel and they are exiled removed from where they live into a foreign land and this glorious temple where God dwelt built by King Solomon is destroyed now I want to pause there because we look at this and we have the whole story. But I want to take a moment and I want to deeply ask you in your heart if that were to occur today would you continue to trust God? Would you continue to recognize that God is at work? Would you continue to look back and say, you know what, God said this was going to occur, but also God said that he would and will restore us wholly. And friends, it's interesting because we look back and we look at what occurred historically, but right now we look forward and that's where when we look to the foundation, we can look forward in faith and say, you know what, God, you have also said that you will send Jesus to collect his bride, the church, and that is going to happen. And that helps us to walk forward in faith. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys the people of God, the temple is laid bare, the people of God are sent into exile. 
and a day goes by, and a week goes by. And how patient are we? How much do we want to wait for something? Okay. Can I ask a quick question? How many of you get upset when Amazon doesn't send the package within a day that you want it delivered? Okay. It's, it's a joke, but it's true. We are so impatient. And a year goes by. And two years go by. And a decade goes by. And then 70 years to the time when the people of God come back is when this reoccurs. But in the interim, the people of God are dispersed and this other army, this bigger army, the Medo-Persians under King Cyrus come and they conquer Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. 70 years. That's a lot of turmoil. Interestingly enough, I'm going to just throw this out, it's a lot of order in the beginning for the people of God, disorder for the people of God, but then reorder for the people of God, because God is faithful. And so God says, even though I am going to remove you into exile, even though the temple is going to be destroyed because you have chosen to walk away from me, I'm going to tell you that I will not walk away from you. And I will love you, and I will be there for you, and I will provide a means by which you can and will be restored to myself. And I'm going to do it through King Cyrus, who, P.S., by the way, as I say I'm going to do this, doesn't even exist for another 150 years. And so Cyrus comes, takes over, essentially captures the greater land that has been taken over by the Babylonians and more, and through the prophet Jeremiah, hears that he is the one that is doing so. And so chooses, no, I don't believe so, providentially is moved by the Spirit of God, because God said he will do it, to issue a decree to the people of God that you are able to return home. You are able to go back to the land of which you've come. You are go, able to go back and to live and to do what it is that you do. And I will oversee that, and I am king, and you will do those things. Now, I also want to lay this down for you. Who do you think is in control here? The world would say Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. But above all, God's saying, I'm the one that's doing all of this. I am the one who has allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come forward. I am the one who has allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come to power. I am the one who has allowed that, that to occur and for you to go into exile. I am the one who has wrought and brought up King Cyrus. I am the one who has allowed Cyrus to take over the Babylonian army. And I am the one who has put in the heart of Cyrus to allow you to return home. And the reason that is so important in this is that God is saying, no matter what's going on, I am the one who is sovereignly guiding and directing the restoration of my people for my glory, my honor, and my name's sake. And so we get to the point where the people of God return, and that's where we start in the first part of Ezra. The decree by Cyrus, it's time to return home. The people of God begin to return home. We get to Ezra chapter 2, which I've told you before, most of us try to what? Flip over because it's just a bunch of list of names. And I don't blame you, because when I read those, those names are hard to pronounce. But I do want to encourage you, as we've talked about before, to recognize that those lists are names of real people who went through the exile and returned home. And like I said before, just in a list of graduation, when you're looking at a son or a daughter who's graduating from high school or college or a master's program or whatever it is that they're doing, and they're at a commencement, well, the first thing that you do is if there's 150 names or 1,000 names, as you go alphabetically down, you look for your son or daughter, you make sure their name is there, you get excited about it, and you celebrate the fact that indeed they're included in that list. And so the reason that it's listed here is to demonstrate that God is a God of order and God is a God of detail and God doesn't forget his people. 
And so friends, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is if you look at that list and in your day sometimes hardship comes and you wonder, does God care about me? Does God know where I am? And in a spiritual aspect, you feel like you are in exile and you have been forgotten about God. Look at this list and say, God does not forget me because I am him and my name is there. And God will restore me. But not only will he restore me, he will restore me in totality. And what I love about the fact of these first two chapters leading into the rebuilding of the altar is it says that God restores his people back to the place of where they lived. It's not that God restores his people and says, okay, I know, and I've said this before, Trevor, you lived in Guthrie County in Panora, and you lived on the west side of the lake, and so now I'm going to restore you, but here's the deal. We're not going to take you back there. You're going to kind of get close, but you're going to live in Casey. Now, I'm not have anything against Casey, right? But the reason that I bring that up is God is saying, I'm not just going to restore you somewhat. I'm not going to just restore you 70% but I'm going to restore you in totality. Doesn't that have a spiritual utterance as well? So not only physically, but spiritually through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, when you put your life in his hands, he's died on the cross to restore you what? 50%? 75%? No, 100%. You are His. And that brings great peace and comfort recognizing how God goes about restoring people to Himself. But what I want to encourage you with this morning is then, okay, so we are restored, but now where are our hearts? And friends, that's why I love this book is because God says, I've restored you. But now what will you do? And the joy of Ezra is to look and see that for a little while, the people of God look back and they say, you know what? Yeah, our hearts need to be close to Him. We need to return to worshiping Him. We need to put Him as our priority. And as we look at the book of Ezra, I find it very interesting that Ezra, the chronicle Okay, either the chronicler or Ezra. It's scholars say that either Ezra wrote both First and Second Chronicles and Ezra, or the chronicler wrote First and Second Chronicles and Ezra. But over a period of time that extends through the book of Ezra, what is going on is as the people of God are restored, there is a second aspect that is so important in this book. It draws their hearts to a deeper sense of awe, reverence, and worship of our King. And that's the main thrust of this book. It's not just to show that God restores, although that's important, but it's to also show that because God restores his people back to himself, the people of God should have a deeper sense of awe, reverence, and worship for him. And so friends, I don't know about you, but where is your heart for him? Has there been a time when God has restored you back to himself, demonstrated his love to you? And what I want to ask you is this, has your heart gone closer to him or has it gone further away from him? Have you focused on his word? Have you focused on who he is? Or have you continued to allow the world to permeate your thoughts and to draw away and say, you know what, because God didn't do what I want, how I want, where I want, and what I want, God must not exist. And so interestingly, as the people of God come back, what do you think's on their minds? Man, my home's destroyed. I better get this thing in order. I better do things for myself. I better figure it out. Once I get my home in order, once I get my life together, then I'll worry about this God thing. Right? No, we look, and as we look in the beginning of chapter 3, we realize that the seventh month came, which is September, according to the calendar, that they're under a short period of time, that the people of God returned to their homes, and their first priority, their main priority, is reestablishing a beautiful building. So they all can say, look at this wonderful, amazing place. No, 
There's a reason, and I've, I, I want you to see this, there is a reason why they rebuild the altar first, and then they worry about rebuilding the temple. And it's because they need to restore the heart of worship of Jesus, or in this case, obviously Yahweh, first. And so one of the things that I want to ask you is this. In your heart, are you restoring the around or are you restoring the soul? Are you authentically going and saying, God, where is my heart for you? Are you my priority? Are you the center and focus of my worship? We looked in chapter 3 and we looked and saw that they begin to rebuild the altar so that they can begin doing the offerings. They can begin doing the sacrifices. They can begin doing the festivals all according to the law of what? Moses. Friends, that right there is essentially according to the word of God as the people of God had it in their day. Let's get back to the word. Let's do what the word says with real hearts, true hearts, genuine hearts. And let's focus there before we worry about out here. And so before we begin, before we look at the temple and we begin realizing the rebuilding of that structure, you cannot get here without examining your heart for God and his word there. That's the whole purpose of this story. And so friends, what I would tell you is before we worry about rebuilding, quote unquote, in this sense, the temple... Have you rebuilt the altar? Because the temple means nothing without the altar. The temple means nothing without the altar. And we pick up in chapter 3. Now let's rebuild the temple. Rebuilding the temple. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink to the, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon and Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after the arrival of the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers of Cadmiel, and sons and descendants of Hodaviah, and sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads which had seen the former temple wept. And when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, well, many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. I love this portion of Scripture because it talks about the importance of rebuilding. One of the things that I want to ask is simply this. I don't know about you, but flashback to two years ago kind of seemed very similar 
It was January, we were looking, and God bless you guys, the Kansas City Chiefs were on their way to go into the Super Bowl. I think that year they actually won. Strikingly, hauntingly similar to where we are today. And no one knew what was about to occur in a couple of weeks in February, a global pandemic that would bring about COVID. Now, I don't want to dwell on COVID too much. God has been faithful and God has seen us through. But I would think we would be all honest. If you said, what do you think 2020 will bring? I'm not a betting man, but I would probably put money down that no one would have said a global pandemic that will last at least two years. Bringing about disorder, bringing about concern, fear, and worry, not only in our world, but also for the church. And so one of the things that I would say is this, that in challenging times, how does the church continue to build God's kingdom? And friends, what I want to tell you is simply this. As we look back to what was occurring in the book of Ezra, as we look forward to what is occurring in our world today, the simplest thing to tell you is this. God is in control and God is building his kingdom regardless. No matter what. And as much chaos was going on for the people of God back in the day of Ezra, God still was sovereignly directing and guiding his church to bring glory and honor to his name, just as he is today. And so what do we do? What are some things that we could look at? What are some things that we need to examine? And how do we continue to build for God's kingdom during our day? I think there's a few answers that we see, particularly in the first two verses, or three verses, of this portion of Scripture. And the first thing that I want to tell you is this, that I think building God's kingdom requires leaders who use their gifts by joining in the work of the church. Friends, as we look at this, what we see is they begin to lay the altar and focus on worship. And then as they build the temple, they begin to, through Zerubbabel and other leaders, assign and ascribe the building and the work of the temple for the people who are doing so. They are the ones who are saying, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to supervise. And friends, what I want to tell you in today's world is the building of God's kingdom, the building of God's church, takes leaders it's not just myself. It's not just Pastor Keith. It's leaders within the church using your gifts and talents to bring glory and honor to God's name. Friends, we do it together. We do it as a body. We do it as an organism that moves for the glory of God. It doesn't just say that one person did this. It says that they organized and came together to bring glory and honor to God's name. But also what I want to show you is this. We look, and right in verse 7, it says, They gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. And then in verse 8, it says, In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel the one who essentially led the first portion of the exodus back to Jerusalem is the one who is leading. And Jeshua and others begin to say, we're going to start the work and we're going to appoint the Levites who are 20 and that age to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. So it took leaders to do so but they're joining in the work of the church. So the other thing that I want to tell you and what I want to encourage to all of our leaders is this. Friends, we're not here just to sit back and watch or to sit back and say do, but we're, sit, we're also here to basically pull up our sleeves and be part and engage in the work of the church. And so lovingly, if you are in a position of leadership within this church or if the Lord in the future should put you in a position of leadership, within this church. Please recognize that leadership is service. Leadership is sacrifice. Leadership is humility. Leadership is walking alongside with others. Sometimes in front of, sometimes beside of, sometimes behind of, behind. Sometimes 
prodding along, sometimes leading ahead, but moving the people of God forward to bring glory and honor to His name. And so friends, what I want to tell you is this. If you are in a leadership position, remember and recognize that it's about humility, service, and sacrifice. But also, friends, what I would tell you is if you are looking to leaders, would you be praying for them? Would you be looking to them and asking and praying for them to bring glory to God? Not nitpicking and criticizing every decision that they make because it doesn't agree with your personal tastes, choices, and desires. At any point in time during the rebuilding of this temple, the people of God could have turned and said, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to rebuild my own house. I'm going to do my own thing. But what we see here is as God moves in their hearts, as God demonstrates his, his covenant love with his people, the people of God are moved to a point where they're unified. They're unified in singular purposes, which we read in obviously the first part of the um, chapter in verse uh, chapter 3. They're unified together right in the beginning when the seventh month, this is uh, chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as different individuals with different thoughts and opinions on what they want to do. And they all ridiculed each and every single person because they thought that they knew what they were doing was best and nobody figured it out. No, as one man in Jerusalem. And then we read essentially for the purpose, which is rebuilding the altar to bring glory and honor to God. And so there's so much that's stated in this. Leaders, number one, are we servants? Are we humble? Is our heart's desire for leadership to bring glory to God? Those that are followers, those that are in the church, are you praying for those leaders? Because lovingly what I'll tell you is, is that there are times when there are tough decisions to make. And there are times when we recognize and realize that the decision that we make isn't going to please everyone. But it's the decision that God is leading us to after humility and prayer and consultation. And so lovingly what I ask is this. Where is your heart for those who are in leadership of the church. Building God's kingdom requires leaders who use their gifts by joining in the work of the church. But then also, as we go into verses 10 and 11, building God's kingdom requires a church body that praises God for His enduring love. This part of rebuilding the temple to me is so fascinating because what we see is they begin to rebuild they do so. And then we get to this break in verse 10, and it says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Anybody ever build anything, a home, part of being maybe building this church, right? It's pretty exciting when you break ground and you see the foundation laid. That's an exciting time, right? People are excited about this. And then we look and we see that the priests in their vestments and the trumpets of the Levites and all of them began to praise God with symbols, praising the Lord as prescribed by King David of Israel. They're looking back to what was stated by the previous kings and saying, this is what we're supposed to do. This is a joyous time. This is great. And so friends, what I want to ask you is this. Are we praising God for what he's doing? Are we thanking him for what he's doing? Are we grateful for what he's doing? Are we going out into the community and saying, you know what, God is amazing and this is who God is and this is what he's done for my life? No, we all don't have to be evangelists. We all don't have to be Billy Grahams. But a question that I want to ask you is this. I hear a lot right now of the woe is me syndrome of COVID and what's going on in the world and everything is this and everything is that and oh gosh, if we could just return to the days of old. Friends, lovingly, we can't. We're called to move forward and trust God for where we are today. And so are we praising God? Are we grateful for who He is and what He's doing? Are we part of the celebration of who He is? The other thing that I want to ask you is this. 
when we praise? Is it for our own glory? Or is it for God's glory? Because what we see is we begin to see that they are praising Him in verse 11 with praise and thanksgiving. They sang to the Lord. Thank you so much, God, because you've given all of what I want, how I want, when I want, and where I want it. And the reason that I'm driving that hard so much in the pulpit today is this. There is so much out there in poor thinking about Christian theology that God exists to serve you. God does not exist to serve you. We exist to serve Him and bring glory to His name despite what occurs. He is good. God is good. His love to Israel endures forever. Friends, what I want to ask is, if this were to occur to us in this church today, could we resoundingly say, praise God, He is good. His love for Israel endures forever. Or would we be crying in our suit because we didn't get what we wanted, how we wanted, and where we wanted, because we expect God to cater to us? Building God's kingdom, friends, requires a church body that praises God for His enduring love and lovingly, I'm telling this to you, may we have a heart check. Are we building God's kingdom or are you building your own? And then we get to this weird part of this weird yuxtaposition of what's going on as the temple's being rebuilt. We see these people praising God, thanking God for it. Simultaneously, we see people weeping. And so what I would say in this, as we look to what's being said in the context of what's happening, is that not only building God's kingdom requires a church body that praises God for His enduring love, but building God's kingdom requires letting go of the past and embracing the future. Now, please hear me on this. This does not mean letting go of the gospel. It does not mean changing the message of Scripture. They've laid the altar and they have returned to the foundations of worship of God. But so often... Individuals can look to the past of what was and have a woe is me syndrome of what is today. And so we look in this and we see that as people are praising, okay? Now, please hear me. For those of you that are older, this is not a comment to your being older. It's just the nature of what's going on in this passage. What happens? We turn... And we read at basically 11, kind of in the uh, end, B, you know, praise God, his love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord was laid. Woohoo! <sighs> but, but, whenever a but is in the Bible, examine the but. It's important. Okay? But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple. What former temple? Okay, that's why the historical aspect of this is important. The temple previously that was built by Solomon. The original one. So here's what's interesting. We realize that there are individuals who had seen the former temple, seen its destruction, been placed in exile. We realize that those individuals had lived for 70 years and now have gone back and seen the start of the new. Simultaneously, while others had been born after the temple had been destroyed. 
Those individuals are looking back, and they're sitting there saying, thank you, God, so much. You've restored us. You've brought us back to our land. You are amazing. I can't believe how you've delivered us. No, they're looking back, and they're going, ah, this isn't as good as it was before. God, you're not good enough. This is terrible. Man, I remember back. This is, oh, geez. Look at what we have now. <laughs> and the reason that I'm putting emphasis to this is, please hear me, I understand that it would be hard for them to look back and realize that what they have now is not as glorious as what it was, but their eyesight is wrong. They're forgetting what God has done. He's delivered them back. He's restored them back to himself. He's rebuilding them in covenant love. And they're looking at the physical and saying it's not as glorious as it was. Where are your eyes? Are your eyes on the altar? Are your eyes on the cross? Or are your eyes out here saying, oh gee, it's not as great as it once was? Because if your eyes are on the cross, no matter what's out here, doesn't matter. It's great no matter what. And so, friends, building God's kingdom requires letting go of the past and embracing the future. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm excited about it. And the reason that I'm excited about it is simply this. I know that God is in control, and I know that God is building his kingdom, and I know that God will return. And I know, as these individuals didn't, that God loves us so much that he rebuilt his temple a second time to dwell among his people. And guess what? God's people got it. And the end of the story was there. And at the end of Ezra, the Bible stops. Friends, they messed up another time. And that temple was destroyed. But God said, you know what? That temple is destroyed, but I love you so much. You know what? I'm not going to dwell in a temple anymore. I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in you. You are the temple of God. My Holy Spirit is going to dwell in you. That's how much I love you. That's how much I want to be with you. That's how much I desire a relationship with you. Even though you keep walking away from me. And we read, and this is what I find so interesting, and this is what I want to lay out to you, but many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who had seen the formal temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Okay? So there's this mix. And it's interesting because sometimes I think, okay, well you could stop there. You could, you could okay, yep, there's this there's kind of this good, bad sort of mix of things. But then there's verse 13. And don't miss verse 13. No one could distinguish the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Why is that there? Why has Ezra chosen to include that? I believe, friends, it's because the world is watching. And what we're going to see in chapter 4 is there are people who are going to oppose what God is doing and they're observing what's going on and they're saying something's happening here. And so I think Ezra includes this to demonstrate a couple of things. People, there are individuals outside of the church who are watching what the church is doing. They're watching how the church is responding. They're watching what the church is doing when it goes through hard times. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. As stated in Ezra, are we going to be a church where there's going to be rejoicing and weeping to the point that no one can distinguish the true noise of the joy of the church? And it's just noise to them. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. 
they just heard a sound. No way to distinguish. But the people of, of God made so much noise, and this is why I think this is so important, that the sound was heard far away. The world is watching. The world is observing. Lovingly, I ask, what noise are we making? Are we joyous? Are we looking and saying, God, thank you for you. Thank you for what you're doing. Yes, this has been a weird two years. Yes, it might even get weirder. Yes, we don't know. But what we do know is you're here and you love us and you've promised to be with us and you will deliver us. And because of that, we're going to make a joyful noise. Because right there, he could have said, and the people of God made a joyous noise and the world heard it. But amongst the joy, there was the woe is me syndrome of looking back and saying, oh boy, it's not like it was. We're not going anywhere. God must not be here. We're no longer the church. He's abandoned us. Or, you know what? He's here, but what we had before was better. It's never going to be the same. Blah, 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 blah. And intermittently, all that the people see out there is noise. And so lovingly, can we make sure that we change that noise to a joyful noise to the Lord? Because His love endures forever. Heart check, friends. Are you someone who constantly looks to the past and criticizes the current situation? Or are you someone who remembers the promises of God and rejoices in His steadfast love for us and embraces the church and its future? Because lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is this. Until Jesus returns, the church always has a future, period. And that future is good. Because Jesus says what? I will build my church. Do we believe it? Do we trust it? Do we rejoice in it? Are we proclaiming it? Friends, in challenging time, how does the church continue to build God's kingdom? Building God's kingdom requires leaders who use their gifts by joining in the work of the church. Building God's kingdom requires a church body that praises God for his enduring love. And building God's kingdom requires letting go of the past and embracing the future. Again, I just want to solidify this. It does not mean letting go of the gospel and changing it to something different. But it means letting go of what was and trusting God into the future as he leads us, as he sees fit. Take home truth, again, if you remember nothing else than this, because I know that several of you are probably thinking about the upcoming game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Cincinnati Bengals. Anybody? Okay, thank you for your honesty, okay? Thank you for being real, right? Friends, building God's kingdom is a team effort. It takes all of us. It takes all of us. However, in which leaders use their gifts to encourage the church body to praise God for his enduring love. While letting go of the past and embracing the future. I'm excited about the future. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that the future is held by Jesus. And that excites me. Building God's kingdom is a team effort in which leaders use their gifts to encourage a church body to praise God for his enduring love while letting go of the past and embracing the future. Real quick in the next week, friends, be wise. And lovingly, what I'll tell you is this. The moment that the church embraces building God's future and the moment that the church is excited about doing so and the moment that the church is praising God for it, guess who's right behind trying to destruct what's going on? The enemy. Oh, that's interesting. Chapter 4. 
opposition to rebuilding until we see you again next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of Ezra. Father, it is such a good book. Not that other scripture isn't, but it's so pertinent to what's going on in our world today. And Father, I pray that as we look back at the promises of God and the provision of God and how God works and how God continually desires to move and dwell in the heart of his people to the point that he comes back and says, I want to rebuild, to the point that the people of God do, to the point that afterwards they become lackadaisical again, to the point that he brings Jesus, to the point that that temple is destroyed, to the point that the nation of Israel is restored in 1948, to the point that we are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit is within us, are all of these things showing us that God so much wants to dwell with his people and to have them bring glory and honor to his name. Father, may that drive deep into our hearts as we go out into this world and be salt and light for you. Father, thank you that you are a God of redemption, that you are a God who redeems wholly and fully and totally. And thank you that you are willing to do so to the point that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb, so that we in our imperfection could be made perfect by the perfect one. Father, help us never to forget that. Help us to rejoice in the fact that you indeed are building your church and we get to participate in it. And Lord, may that drive our hearts into the years ahead as we bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.